Hi everyone, I'm Anya Parampil and this is Redlines. Fifteen Asia-Pacific nations have signed a landmark economic agreement forming the largest trading bloc in history. The Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, or RCEP, was signed on November 15th, with signatories including China, Australia, Japan, South Korea, and Indonesia. RCEP member states account for roughly 30% of the world population and 30% of global GDP. So, how does RCEP represent a major shift in the global economy, especially considering the United States is not included in the pact? To find out, I'm joined now by Beijing-based journalist Ian Goodrum. Welcome back to Redlines, Ian. Thanks for having me again. How long has this deal been under negotiation and what are its main components? Well, it was announced in late 2011. Uh, it was it was kind of set into motion uh, several, several years ago and negotiations began in 2012. So this has been in the works for a long time. Uh, and it's, it's only just been signed uh, by member nations this past Sunday and it will take ratification over the course of the next few months, probably the next few years for it to enter into force. So, we're, you know, this is the first, th this is a major moment in, in terms of the adoption of the agreement, but there's still quite a long way to go. And there's still a lot of ratification that has to be done. Every signatory has to ratify it, or after two years, I believe it's at least six have to ratify it with, uh, I believe 35% of, of the total GDP or 25% of the total GDP of all uh, signatories. So the first step in, in the next part of a long process. As far as what it actually covers, um, it's, it is, somewhat limited in its in its scope. It, it mostly covers things like tariffs, import taxes. Uh, it does cover some things like intellectual property. It does cover e-commerce and point of origin uh, rules, but it's not as, despite comprehensive being in the name, it is not as comprehensive as some other trade agreements that have been agreed to, but it does represent the largest uh, trade agreement in, uh, that has been signed currently. So that that, that does make it a major a major moment, but but there have been some kind of uh, heralds of apocalypse coming from some people saying this this marks the end of the United States as an economic entity and all that sort of thing, and it is a, that is a tad bit overdramatic, but it is an important an important agreement. So, what exactly makes it historic then, and how are media outlets in Asia covering the news? Well. It's, it's historic in terms of its scope, mostly, because it, it covers 30% of the world's population and about 30% of the world's GDP. You know, this is the, this is the largest trade agreement, um, bigger than the European Union, bigger than the, the U.S.-Canada-Mexico agreement, um, in terms of population and in terms of, of GDP. So that makes it a big deal. It's also the first free trade agreement between Japan, Republic of Korea, and China, uh, who previously haven't had any formal free trade agreement like this. There have been, of course, bilateral negotiations on trade, but but no kind of common common project of this nature. Um, and as far as it's been reported, I mean, it's been it's it is it is a big deal. You know, I don't I don't want to downplay that fact, despite the fact despite the the limited um, nature of its of its provisions. But this is uh, this is a, this is a big moment for for Asia as a as a region because it, it covers almost everyone in the region, uh, it covers the major economies of the region, it, it brings the regions and countries closer together in terms of economic relations and trade, and it does mark a shift, not, not, you know, not a wholesale kind of uh, jerking motion of, of the, the World Economic Center from the west to the east, 
but it does mark kind of a, another step in the process of shifting of the economic center of the world to Asia. And, and so this, this advantages, because this advantages so many Asian economies in terms of the relations with one another, in Asia, it's being reported as, as a, major, a major deal, uh, a major success. And, uh, and I think that's not entirely inaccurate. Although there are, you know, there are some objectives that, objections that have been brought up by some groups and those need to be considered and, and, and taken seriously um, on the basis of environmental and labor standards. This is not really, it's not the same kind of agreement that would include all those things. Again, it, it, is, a, it is a limited agreement, despite it being so big in terms of, of the populations it affects and the, and the slice of the world economy that it affects. And what does it say about the future of the world economy that the United States was not included in this agreement? How might that impact the United States? Well, I mean, it, it certainly means that uh, even even countries that are that are historically and and um, statutorily allies with the United States, like the Republic of Korea and Japan, get pre can get preferential treatment from their closer neighbors in terms of imports and exports and trade, which would make them theoretically and, and probably in practice more likely to engage in more trade with their neighbors rather than with the U.S. So it does it does kind of privilege the the economies of, of Asian nations over. Western nations who might previously have enjoyed a preferential economic relationship, because the the, the tariffs have been reduced to such a degree, and because there is uh, the, the the process of import and export and trade have, have been streamlined to a degree with this agreement, um, this does represent a a shift in terms of just who uh, who will be trading with whom. Uh, certainly, there will still be a trade relationship between the U.S. and Japan, the U.S. and China, South Korea. Uh, Republic of Korea, Australia, New Zealand. Obviously, those relationships aren't going anywhere anytime soon. But in terms of how this shakes out in practice, there will be some shift of of priorities. Um, and so it it does mark it does mark a change. It does mark a an evolution in in the way the world economy functions. U.S. President-elect Joe Biden was asked about RCEP during a recent press conference. Let's hear what he had to say about his plans to join the pact. We know in the last couple of days, 15 countries, Asian Pacific countries, have signed onto a new trade deal, the RCEP. Should the United States consider joining that trade agreement? I've talked with a number of these world leaders, and I told them, under the law, I'm not able to begin to discuss with them. There's only one president at a time as to who can say what our policy will be. So I'm reluctant to answer that question now, but here's what I can say. We make up 25% of the world's trading capacity, of the economy of the world. We need to be aligned with the other democracies, another 25% or more, so that we can set the rules of the road instead of having China and others dictate outcomes because they are the only game in town. How do you interpret his comments that agreements such as RCEP leave powers like China as the only game in town? Yeah, I, I watched I watched the, the, the that segment of his uh, of his uh, press conference there where he discussed it. He was being a little cagey about it because he didn't. I don't know that he wanted to comment on the details of it because I'm not sure he knew the details. But um, it's it's. There has there has been an attempt by uh, Western media and and Western politicians to paint this as like a huge triumph for China, 
and, and, and like a Chinese dominated trade deal, because that's that suits the narrative of, of kind of China being assertive and and um, and more shall we say, aggressive in certain areas. And so this is another way, you know, it, it's framed as in terms of a competition, right? That that because there was a trade agreement signed among Asian countries, then China was a part of this. It must have been dominating everybody and forcing everybody to play by its rules. But in reality, this was negotiated by all parties. Um, and it's it's probably, it's probably, all the terms aren't, probably aren't exactly what China would want ideally, but it agreed to, it agreed to the terms because it was acceptable. You know, this was a, this was a big, uh, a big discussion, a big negotiation, many many years. But um, as far as as far as the implications of 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 what Biden was saying, he's he 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 certainly does seem to want to return to the kind of multilateralism that was characterized by previous administrations, especially previous Democratic administrations like Clinton and Obama. Um, and so this idea of of Donald Trump being more protectionist and unilateral. Um, leaving the door open for countries like China to step in. I mean, I, I've, it's not entirely wrong, but it's also kind of an inaccurate characterization because it's it doesn't take into account the reality of the process of coming to these agreements. Um, so as I said, it's 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 a regional deal uh, among regional partners. You know, the the idea that the U.S. should have a say in that is a little strange. Um, and the idea that the U.S. needs to consider this a loss and, and that it needs to be trying to catch up uh, with China on the basis of this agreement is a little is also a little strange. Um, you know, the the U.S. had its chance; it had its Trans-Pacific Partnership that that Donald Trump withdrew from, and then the countries that were signatories of the TPP that weren't the U.S. made their own agreement that was uh, that was weakened in scope. The U.S. had a lot more stringent requirements because of the economic power that it holds in uh, in making these negotiations. So, it's it's interesting, like the fact that. The U.S. kind of did dominate TPP negotiations because it was it was part of their their so-called pivot to Asia and their their containment strategy against China to kind of economically and and isolate China from from the rest of the region. So the U.S. set a lot of terms that other countries weren't happy with. But as far as we know from the negotiation process that happened here, the only the only country that might have come away uh, feeling a little bit miffed was India because they withdrew last year. But everybody else seems to be okay with the terms, and, and they've signed on, and I expect they'll ratify it as well. So it's a different kind of process. I, I think there's some projection going on when it comes to discussion of, of this agreement and other agreements. There's a certain uh, self-identification with from the U.S. because of the way it handles its trade agreements uh, that it assumes, because China is a big economy and a big country, it must handle its negotiations the same way, when in reality, uh, I think there's a lot more concili conciliatory tones taken and a lot more concessions made than you would see uh, when the U.S. is at the negotiating table. So, I mean, certainly there is an economic shift, as we talked about before, but I think there is a there is a desire to characterize it in a very negative fashion, and I don't think that's particularly fair. Is joining RCEP even an option for the United States? Theoretically, uh, it is because the, there is a provision in the actual text of the agreement that says after a certain period of time, other nations can apply to join. In reality, I think that's pretty unlikely just because, you know, regional, it is it's in the name regional uh, comprehensive economic partnership. It's, you know, the U.S. is not in the Asia Pacific region, despite the fact that it, it seems to think of itself that way many times by sending warships into the South China Sea and, and, and putting military <laughs> bases in Japan and the Republic of Korea. 
and 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 engaging in all these sorts of activities. It, it does seem to think of the Asia Pacific as its region, but it's not really. Um, so, as, I mean, the U.S. can certainly apply. It it it, it, att it attempted to apply to the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, a different a different uh, partnership that that is among uh, other countries, not not necessarily the same countries that are in RCEP, but it was uh, rejected. So, I mean. They're certainly welcome to try. I don't think it's very likely. I think the whole point of this partnership is that it it brings the economies of the region closer together. It brings Asian economies closer together. It makes it easier for Asian economies to trade with one another, as opposed to the same old trade agreements that they've had with the U.S., which is a very powerful and, and economically dominant country. You know, uh, I don't. It would it would kind of defeat the purpose. So it's certainly possible, but very unlikely. The United States likes to consider itself as part of the region also because it has a coast on the Pacific Ocean, even though it's the largest ocean in the world, it would be hard to really drill down a, a, a way that it fits into the Asia Pacific region. But that's what you hear in US media. Oh, we have a, a Pacific coast as well. How much space did President Donald Trump's withdrawal from the Trans-Pacific Partnership or TPP create for the formation of RCEP? Well, like like we said, it's it's been in discussion long before Trump withdrew from the TPP in 2017. But certainly that withdrawal did kickstart um, it did give kind of a boost to efforts to get this thing signed because in the absence of, of the United States, a, a big major economy as part of the agreement, I mean, certainly the terms of the new uh, TPP-11, as it's called, it has a few names, uh, none of them particularly catchy, and it, it's not as strong a, a deal. You know, it, it's not, it doesn't have the same kind of heft because the U.S. isn't involved and the U.S. is the, the, the biggest economy. Um, so in the absence of that kind of strength and partnership through the TPP, countries like uh, countries like Japan and Republic of Korea, uh, you know, countries that are closer to the U.S. had to seek an alternative, and that alternative is RCEP. Not necessarily the alternative just being China, but the alternative being all the countries that are part of the agreement. So this includes Australia and New Zealand, countries that that consider themselves part of the Western Anglosphere, but but in terms of geography and economics, they're part of the Asia Pacific region. Um, so it did. It did kind of give a give a boost, give a, a a kick to to motivate countries to 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 keep the process going, and to and to re-enter it with some more uh, with more vigor. So I think probably it would have eventually been signed anyway. But with the withdrawal of the U.S. from the TPP, we got a, We got us. We got the signatures. We saw the signing ceremony take place much earlier than it would have otherwise. Is it possible that the Biden administration will revive TPP talks? Is there an appetite or interest for that in Asia? That I can't really speak to very much because I'm not entirely sure. It, it did seem like, un, unlike the kind of apocalyptic uh, musings that are happening with, with the signing of RCEP, there were some, some apocalyptic discussion about the death of the TPP once Trump withdrew. And it, it didn't die, you know, it came back and, and the next year the rest of the countries signed. But as far as the impact it was going to have on the world economy, it was functionally dead. Um, whether that whether it can even be restarted now that there is a, a new agreement uh, that has excluded the U.S., I, I'm not even sure if that's possible. I mean, that I'm not familiar with. There might be provisions in the in the new TPP, TPP-11, that, that are similar to RCEP and that countries can join at a later date. If that's the case, it's possible. 
you know, Biden Biden has very much made this. He made the campaign a referendum on Trump. He he has characterized his transition by by being not Trump and essentially discussing rolling back all the 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 executive orders and unilateral withdrawals that Trump made. He's specifically mentioned the Paris Climate Agreement. He's mentioned uh, the Iran nuclear deal. He hasn't mentioned the TPP as much. That hasn't been uh, as high up on his agenda as as the other two. So um, it's. I'm, I, unfortunately, I can't. I can't speak to the details of how that such a process would take place. But if there is a process in place where the U.S. could rejoin, um, I don't see it as a priority for the administration because otherwise he would have been talking about it as much as he's been talking about the Paris negotiation and the the Iran nuclear deal. So, it's um, if it is on the agenda somewhere, it is very low on the priority list. That that would be my guess anyway. And perhaps low on the priority list of Asian countries considering this new agreement. Do we know why India is not a part of RCEP or if it may join in the future? I know you alluded to this, but I don't know if you have any more detail. Well, I mean, there's been a very, there's been a decidedly kind of anti-China sentiment upswing in India in recent years. Um, there was, there was an, there was some allegations that, that RCEP would be would mean Chinese domination of the of the regional economies, and I don't know if that's necessarily true. I, I do know that that the worst way, if, if you are concerned about Chinese domination, I, again, I don't think that's a that's a particularly valid concern. But if that is your concern, it doesn't seem like the best idea to pull your your economy out of the agreement when you represent a very large chunk of the, of the countries that would be signing the GDP of the countries that would be signing the agreement. So it, it's a little counterintuitive there. Um, but but that's that's been the public facing rhetoric as far as as far as India's withdrawal is concerned. They they were worried about. They didn't and and there was a there was some concern about um, intellectual property agreements covering uh, prescription drugs, which India has a very large interest in prescription drugs because it manufactures quite a lot of generic drugs, and it's that that's a major industry for the country. But that that there was a lot more kind of um, you know fiery rhetoric about about China, which is kind of the the MO for Modi lately. As far as India rejoining, um, it's interesting you mention that because, as I said, there, there's a provision in the in the RCEP that that says that countries, new countries can enter the agreement after a certain period of time. India is the only exception to that. India can enter re-enter the agreement anytime it wants. So the door has been left open for India to come back if they if they so choose. So it's possible. Um, it, it, the the Indian economy is not in a great is not in a great state uh, even before COVID and, and now especially um, so there could be there could be some involuntary motivation just in terms of the economy that pushes India back into uh, back into RCEP just because this they need some kind of stimulus and this would be a way to to do that um, but I don't know it, it's hard to say they they might begrudgingly join they might stay out of it but um, even so it, it remains the biggest agreement of its type in the history of the world. So, And finally, how might RCEP reorganize global supply chains? This is a, a buzz term we hear all the time now, especially since the outbreak of COVID-19. Sure. Well, the biggest, the biggest change to supply chains um, in terms of its direct impact is kind of the, the rules of origin stipulations, which will which basically say that that once the once the agreement is enforced and has been ratified, that a once you have customs clearance uh, from one country, you you can then you know transfer goods uh, across the borders of the 
the other signatories to the agreement without having to go through new procedures, new processes. So it will facilitate the flow of goods um, and, and, and speed that process up. So in terms of within the, the, the borders of the agreement, it will certainly, it will certainly uh, move things along faster and, and create uh, you know, uh, easier flow. In terms of, of transfers from countries within the agreement to countries outside of the agreement, the process remains the same. So there will be, you know, there will there will be increased flow, and, and all the economic uh, benefits that that come from that. But in terms of of supply chains to the rest of the world, um, that shouldn't change too much. I mean, certainly, if there is this kind of freer flow, then there is a greater motivation to to trade with those countries inside the partnership from those outside the partnership. Um, but there's already been a reorientation of manufacturing and a reorientation of supply chains, if and not strictly to China. Um, there's there's manufacturing in Vietnam, in Malaysia, in Bangladesh, India, lots of countries. So supply chains will probably continue their their march eastward even if it's not necessarily based in China the way it was in previous decades. Um, but as far as what the agreement does, it really it really is about uh, increasing flow and increasing trade within the, the, the partnership as opposed to, to inside-outside. Um, so the, the changing of supply chains might be, might be independent uh, because that process has been ongoing for quite some time. Ian Goodrum, I always appreciate your analysis and your tweets. Thanks so much. Thank you.